We'll be reading Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. It'll also be up on the screen, but if you have your black Bibles or your own Bible, um, in the black Bibles, it's in page 947. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air and the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that we, or that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Good morning, Trinity. It's great to see you. You made it. Minus 18 wind chill, but you really did it. You're here. Congratulations. You know, blessed is the one who perseveres through very, very cold weather. I'm going to say that over you. Way to go. You made it. If you're watching from home, that's not a like backhanded dig. We're so glad you're watching from home as well. But for those of you who are here, I'm really glad you're here. If this is your first time, we look forward to getting to know you. It's great to see you. Um, you know, if last week was your first time, we had our celebration service, which was an absolute blast. Uh, so you might be thinking this church is incredible. God's at work, super cool building. Everything's going great. Uh, but I'm afraid today it's going to come kind of crashing down uh, because we're working through Ephesians. And today's passage is about sin and condemnation and death. Uh, and if that wasn't enough, we have a special midweek service coming up. Ash Wednesday, uh, which is also about sin, condemnation, and death. So it was a fun run, but back to 12 people in our living room, most likely. Well, we are looking at uh, Ephesians 2, as I said, and, and as you saw on the screen, which is really the, the, one of the clearest doctrines of sin that we get in the Scriptures. And, um, you know, for us, we need to understand sin, and not just so that we will sin less. You know, we need to understand sin so that we can understand God and so we can understand ourselves, so we can have a, a proper estimation and self-knowledge on our own. We need to understand sin to understand what we're up against from within us, from outside of us, the threats that are against us. We need to understand sin to make sense of life in this broken world. Uh, my wife and I have been watching this series on Netflix called Manhunt, uh, most recently, we just finished the series on the Unabomber. So 17 years, the Unabomber, you know, escaped the, the FBI. For 17 years, uh, he outsmarted them until finally he was found in this one-room cabin in, in the middle of Montana. Uh, but it's actually the series before that or the season before that that we like the most, which is about the Atlanta Olympic bomber. Now, this guy was chased into the woods by the FBI but then stayed in the woods by himself and, and lived in the woods for over five years until he finally came out and, and was arrested. Now, interestingly, these two 
serial bombers actually live across the hall from each other. They're both in the, the Supermax prison in Colorado. But there's this interesting moment in the Atlanta series where this FBI agent says, you know, I've, I've been thinking about evil. And I've been thinking that evil doesn't really exist. It's just the absence of good. And the way that darkness doesn't really exist, it's just the absence of light. Now, this is a Hollywood line and a Hollywood actor because I cannot imagine that somebody who actually follows serial killers for a living would deny the existence of evil. I just don't think that's possible. It does us no good whatsoever to deny the, the existence of evil and, and to deny the power of sin that exists still even in our own hearts. To quote the old missionary Jack Miller, the gospel says you are more sinful than you would ever dare admit and that you are more loved than you could ever dare imagine. And so over the next two weeks, we're sort of looking at both sides of this, and that's what Ephesians 2 all the way through verse 10 does. We see the bad news about ourselves first so that we can see the good news about what God has done for us in Christ second. And it's until we see all that we're saved from that we'll never believe all that we're saved to. Until we feel all that we've been forgiven from, we'll never love and forgive others from a deep place. And our vision as a church is to see the renewal of all things. It's, it's a massive vision. It's basically everything. We want to see the renewal of all things. And that can't happen without the renewal of the church. And the renewal of the church can't happen without personal renewal. And personal renewal can't happen unless we have an accurate view of ourselves. An honest and non-anxious awareness of sin. So the three things we're going to look at today, what sin is, why it's so strong, and then third, how it's defeated. So we'll begin by looking at what sin is, and we'll go back to Ephesians 2. The first three verses lay it out for us. Paul writes, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Now, these are some hard words, but what's interesting is, is how many different words and phrases are used to describe sin, either the nature of sin or the results of sin. I mean, just in these three verses, you could count them. It says we're dead that our sins are called transgressions. They're also called sins. The, the ways of this world are described. The ruler of the kingdom of the air, disobedient, the cravings of the flesh, desires, thoughts, by nature were deserving of wrath. I count at least 10 mentions of sin's nature or, or the results of sin in only three verses. Now, this is consistent of the Bible. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew language has more than 20 different words to to describe sin. The New Testament Greek has more than a dozen words to describe sin, and yet we often as a culture, even in the church, are so afraid to even use the one word, sin. Now here's why this matters so much. It's because our appreciation of grace is directly correlated to our awareness of sin. How much we appreciate grace is determined by how much we see our need for that grace. When sin is small, then grace is small as well. 
And so we need this rich vocabulary of sin before we can have a rich vocabulary of God's grace. And the first thing we need to know about sin is that it brings death. You see that right there in verse 1. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. Or saying you were dead. And so he's speaking to Christians saying, prior to the work of Christ in your life, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Not struggling, not seeking, you know, not mostly dead, all right? Not in need of education or reform or better politics or a gluten-free diet. You were just dead in sin. Romans 6.23 explains why. It says the wages of sin is death. Now, sometimes at, at bedtimes when we're doing Bible stories with our kids and reading and praying with them, I'll, I'll ask them kind of some questions. And I'll say, you know, why did Jesus come to earth? My oldest son said, to, to save us. I said, well, what did he save us from? From our sins. What did he do to save us from our sins? He died for us. Well, why did he die for us? Couldn't God have just forgiven our sins? He's like, oh, oof. I was like, all right, well, here's, here's what it is. Romans 6, the wages of sin. In other words, the penalty for any sin, even a single sin, the wages of sin is death. Now, maybe that seems a little harsh. Uh, harsh to like, you know, ask questions of an 11-year-old as he's falling asleep. And harsh of God to, to judge us or condemn us for one single sin. I mean, just one small mistake, really, that brings about our death? And the answer is yes, and the reason for that is because it's not about the, the sin, it's not about the quantity of our sin, it's about who we've sinned against. And if God is, is perfect in his nature, and if he's given us a law that requires total obedience, then any sin, no matter how small or big or how many times you do it, still by nature separates us from the presence of God because he's holy and can't be in the presence of sin. Now along with that, the nature of sin is that it's corrupting. It turns what's good and, and makes it evil, and it's infectious, meaning it, it just continues to multiply. It's malignant. It grows and grows and grows. Hebrews 9 says, Without the shedding of blood, then, there can be no forgiveness. And so the first thing we need to know about sin is that we are dead in sin apart from Christ. Sin brings death. But the second thing, just as important, is that sin at its core is disordered desire. It's disordered desire. Our desires have been disordered, and that's what sin is. Verse 3 says, All of us lived also among them, meaning sort of those who haven't met Christ yet, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. And sort of the longest meditation on sin in the Bible, which is Romans 1 through 3, it describes the nature of sin as exchanging God's glory for the glory of other things. And this makes sense of all the, the idolatry in the Old Testament when the, when the Hebrews would worship these, these statues and these graven images. Now, we don't do that, obviously, today, but we all have disordered desires for self-glory. We, we want something that's good, but we, we go about it the wrong way. So maybe we want to be accepted, which is a great thing, but we go about it the wrong way, or we want some, some power and agency in the world, which is okay in itself, but we go about it at the oppression of others. Beneath every sin is a disordered desire, a desire for something good that's become selfish. Now, John Piper, uh, uh, an old pastor, has said that sin as, as its core, at its core, is not a hater, it's a lover. 
that exchanges the love of God for the love of alternate lovers. And so that's why if, if somebody is, say, struggling with greed, you know, the, the first response to somebody who lacks generosity or they're constantly anxious about money, the first thing we, we ought to say is not stop being greedy, but rather what's the thing beneath the thing? What's, what's the pain or, or the hurt in your life that's causing you to, to look for justification and gaining more things and money and possessions and maybe control over others? What is it that you're trying to fill in your soul that's making you turn towards money and possessions? Or maybe for somebody who's, who's spending all day on Facebook and Twitter and, and Instagram, you know, liking and posting and counting their likes and arguing with other people. The answer is simply not like stop being a screen addict. It's what is going on in your heart that makes you feel the need for this sort of external affirmation. Perhaps what you're missing is, is so deep and the only thing that could possibly fill it is God's presence himself. There's always a thing beneath a thing. And, and even these examples, greed and, and social media, you know, lust and sexual sin is this way. It's infectious, right? It's malignant. There's no end to it. There's, there's no end to greed. There's no end to social media. You know, it just scrolls and scrolls forever. But sin at, at its core, it's disordered desire. We're, we're desiring loving creatures. We're passionate creatures but when that gets disordered, that's sin. Now, the second thing, why is sin so strong? And it's because sin has a support system. You know, people, people who are strong often have a strong support system. People who are weak have a weak support system. And sin is strong because it has such a strong support system. And what I mean by that is that Ephesians in these first three verses describe a, a threefold power of sin, something that's, that sort of supports the nature of sin, and that's the flesh, the world, and the devil. The flesh, the world, and the devil. We might call these the dynamics of spiritual death. First, the flesh, verse 3, all of us also lived gratifying the cravings of our flesh following its desires and thoughts. That means the, the flesh is our, our hearts and our, our minds and our, our soul apart from Christ. And so as Christians, what this means is that we have a, an inner dueling between the Holy Spirit within us and our old nature. So we don't completely lose our, our sin nature when we believe in Christ and when he fills us with his Holy Spirit. But what the New Testament says is that we have a new self and an old self, and they're constantly battling against one another. Have you felt that? Does that make sense of your, your daily experience? I know that it does for me. I want to do good. I want to do what's right. And yet this old nature within me is fighting it with everything it's got. Richard Lovelace, uh, he wrote the Renewal is a Way of Life, one of my favorite books. And he says, all who attempt for a single day to lead a life centered on God and his kingdom will discover that they have a battle on their hands. We do not have in ourselves the wellsprings of a love which will delight in God and constantly seek to obey his will. I mean, from the moment that I get up in the morning and I, and I want to go get my coffee and, you know, on my best days, I'm excited to like get in my comfy chair and I've got my Bible and my journal and I really do want to have this sort of time with the Lord. But immediately my mind begins racing to the things that I have to do that day. 
I'm tempted to check sports scores. I'm like, I'll just do it for a couple minutes to see what happened in the NBA. I get distracted. My kids wake up. I get frustrated. I get hungry. And just immediately, it's like the flesh just takes over. It takes so much energy to push all of that back. Throughout the day, we struggle against so many different things, and it's the old self fighting against us, the the flesh that remains within us. You know, as you get older, I think your awareness of your own sin actually grows. Even as a believer, if you're maturing in Christ and you're actually sinning less, you're probably far more aware of your sin than you ever have been before. I love the story in John 8 where a woman who's been caught in sin is is drugged out into the street in front of Jesus. And they say, you know, our, our laws say that we have to stone her for committing adultery. What do you say, Jesus? And Jesus says, whoever is without sin, cast the first stone. In the text, it says that one by one, they all dropped their stones, beginning with the oldest of them. So those who are most familiar with their sin, their brokenness, You know, I mean, also, they've lived in this community their whole lives. So if you're the first one to throw a stone, everybody's like, not that guy. This awareness of sin comes with growth, with maturity. And it's actually the best possible thing. It heightens our awareness of the grace that God has for us. And so the first element of the support system is the flesh. The second is the world. Paul says, you used to live following the ways of this world. Now, the New Testament uses the the word world in two different ways. The first one is a really general sense. So, you know, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Just means all peoples on earth. The second way that it uses it is world as a, a system of rebellion and disobedience against God. This is mostly in the Gospel of John. It does it like 50, 55 times. The book of 1 John, the same author, does it about 15 times. So a couple of examples. It says, this is from uh, 1 John, You do not belong to the world, but I have chosen... I'm sorry, Gospel of John. You do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. He's not just saying the world as, a, as an accumulation of people, but the, the system of disbelief and rebellion, that is why I have called you out of the world and the world will continue to hate you. Maybe the most important verse is John, 1 John 2.15, which says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. Now, that's a a challenging verse, and so often it's misunderstood because the very next verse clarifies, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. So what 1 John is not saying is that don't love anything in the world. You know, if the preacher says, you shall not love anything in the world, you know, don't love, uh, you know, quality time with your friends. You know, don't love a, a warm cup of small batch coffee on a cold morning. Don't love, you know, crushing fools on your road bike. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, don't love the things of this world, which are the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. He's saying, don't love this system of, of organized evil against God. Now, this this doctrine of a a fallen world, it also explains that some of our sin is not even individual. It's 
It's impersonal or systemic. Richard Lovelace, again, he writes, we can be moral and respectable while at the same time be involved in businesses or societies which are oppressing others. There is a corporate guilt we bear because of our participation in crooked systems, though our own lives may be straight by ordinary standards. Unless the Holy Spirit breaks through our conventional behavior with the conviction that we are involved in things that are opposed to God's kingdom, we will inevitably continue sleepwalking in sin. We're actually going to talk about that more in two weeks, the presence of systemic sin and evil. But the world is broken. It's rebellious. And God calls us out of the world in this sense. So 1 Corinthians 2.12, love this. He says, what we have received is not the spirit of this world, but the spirit who is from God. Now we have the flesh, the world, and the third thing is the devil. The third dynamic of spiritual death Paul says, we've been following the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. If it's ever felt like somebody, some force is actively opposed to you, your your growth, your relationships, that's 100% true. All day long, your, your activity, your relationships, your own soul is being actively opposed by the devil and by demons. That's what the New Testament teaches. Now, the devil one day will be completely defeated. He has been defeated at the cross when Jesus died for our sins and rose again. That meant victory over Satan, sin, and death. And yet, Satan still has a measure of power in our world. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a lion looking for someone to devour. And this is the way I... I, explain it because I'm a sports fan and my mind just works that way. About three weeks ago, the Chiefs beat the Bills to go to the Super Bowl, you know. Uh, it was a blowout, and at the end of the game, like less than two minutes left, the Bills had four unsportsmanlike penalties called on them. So the game was basically over. They had lost, but there's still some time on the clock, so they start taking cheap shots. That's essentially what the devil is doing. He has been definitively defeated at the cross and the resurrection. He knows it's over and he's going down, but there's a couple of minutes left on the clock, so he's trying to take out as many people as he can. He has lost. The devil has been defeated, and yet he's still coming after you with everything he's got. I don't know if you've ever thought about why Paul describes him as the king, or or rather the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And that's because the, the world, in the sense that we just talked about it, is the kingdom of evil. But that phrase, the kingdom of the air, that means that the devil's influence is as pervasive in our world as air is. It means he's everywhere. Sin, the, the corruption of sin, it's it's everywhere. It's multiplied that much. But even still, we don't have to be afraid. Because he's defeated, because his power has been broken by a greater power, the power of Christ, James 4, 7 can say, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Not even fight him, just resist him like for a moment and the devil will flee. Now, I know that's a long time to spend on sin and on the dynamics of spiritual death. I think that's important for the rest of Ephesians, but I think it's also so important for our daily lives. I don't think there can be any humility apart 
from an accurate awareness of our own sin. See, people who understand sin, they're not more difficult to be around. They're a delight to be around. You can't possibly be judgmental when you really understand your own sin. When you see yourself at at, at the core and you realize you can't see everybody else's sin, but you can see your own. It's why Paul can say that he is the chief of all sinners. There's an old theologian that wrote, spiritual pride is very apt to suspect others, whereas a humble saint is suspicious of nothing in the world as he is of his own heart. The humble Christian has so much to do at home and sees so much evil in his own heart and is so concerned about it that he cannot be busy judging others. And then Richard Loveless, one last time, he says, when great numbers of Christians straighten out crooked patterns of living and start making a prophetic and evangelistic appeal to those around him, a culture can be shaken to its foundations. Perhaps the shallow results of the current evangelical and charismatic resurgence spring from a spirituality which takes a detour around the vision of sin in order to grasp its psychological and material comfort. In other words, our appreciation of grace is directly related to our awareness of our own sin. So then, last thing, how is sin defeated? If it's, if it's this strong power in the world, if it has the support system of the flesh, the world, and the devil, how is it defeated? Look at verse 4. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. See, Jesus' death is the means of our forgiveness. It's the means of our salvation. All of our sins were placed onto Christ on the cross. And that's what was necessary. In order for a a spiritually dead person to be made alive again, another death is required. If the wages of sin is death, it requires death. If, If there's no forgiveness without the shedding of blood, someone has to die, but not us. It's exactly what Jesus came to do, to pay the penalty for our sins in full, once and for all, past, present, and future. Jesus took all of our sins upon himself on the cross. And as a result, his perfect life, his righteousness, his obedience is given to us. It's called the great exchange. All of our sin transferred to him. All of his righteousness transferred to us. That's the good news of Christianity. Literally, Jesus entered into death to defeat it. He became sin to defeat it from the inside. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made Jesus, who had no sin, to become sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's like in Star Wars, where they have to go into the middle of the Death Star to blow it up from the inside. I've never actually seen a Star Wars movie all the way to the end. Again, that's what my 11-year-old says happens. But death can only be defeated from within. Sin can only be conquered if sin is buried and dead. And so Jesus takes all of our sin onto himself. He's buried. And you know the story. He doesn't stay buried. 
It's as if sin is the second strongest power in the world. It's stronger than we could possibly imagine, yet it is a distant second to the power of God. I love the way the early church, when they were trying to to defend the resurrection of Jesus, which doesn't make sense. Dead people don't get up and walk around. And what the early church says in Acts 2.24 is, it was impossible for death to keep its hold on Jesus. Isn't that incredible? Like it just wasn't possible for death to hold on to Jesus long enough on the third day when he decided to get up. It was just time to get up. And death had no chance. The power of sin is broken in an instant. It's just not strong enough. And what it says is that when Jesus was raised, we were raised with him. We saw that the last few weeks. It's called union with Christ, that we are made one with Jesus. And if we're united to him and his death, and his death covers all of our sins, the penalty for our sins, it means that we are also united to him in resurrection. So that when he was raised from the dead, we were raised spiritually with him with a promise that we will one day be raised physically. The resurrection, Paul says, was the first fruits of a coming resurrection. The very, you know, the first fruits on the tree, the, the sign that spring is coming, that was the resurrection of Jesus. The harvest, all the other fruit, that's us being raised from the dead at the end of time. When Christ returns, all people who follow him raised with new and redeemed bodies. And so if you think about the dynamics of spiritual death, this is the dynamics of spiritual life. Everything that that supports sin is, is overcome. We're no longer under the power of the flesh, but we're under a greater power, the power of the Spirit. We no longer belong to the world, but we belong to the Father. We no longer fear the devil because the Son has crushed him under his foot. And so, yes, we need to take our sins so seriously to appreciate the grace of God. Our daily focus is not even really on our sin. It's on Jesus himself. We, we fix our eyes on Christ, and that's what helps us see our sin for what it is. We don't, we don't constantly focus on our sin. We constantly focus on God. And Paul writes in Galatians 5.16, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If you're living in the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the flesh is overcome. You know, the best defense is a great offense. Don't just worry about your sin. Focus your eyes on Christ. And the sin will be rooted out. It'll be overcome. With the return of Christ, all of this is done for. The flesh is buried and we are raised with new bodies. The world is restored to its original good. A new creation has come about. And the devil is defeated for all eternity. Now, the very last thing, why... Why would God do this? Why, knowing all of our sin, knowing knowing the the flesh of our hearts even now, knowing all the sins that we'll commit in the future, why would God be willing to send his own son to die for people like us? Not only that, but to raise us up. The text says so clearly, because of his great love for us, God, rich in mercy, raises us with Christ. 
God's love is the reason you're here. It's why you're alive. It's why if you're a Christian, you have his very presence filling your body even now. And it's until you feel God's love for you that the the things of the flesh, the world, and the devil, they'll always be appealing until you're overwhelmed by God's love. Until that stronger power has has expelled the weaker power. Until we, we give up the fight to prove ourselves and make a name for ourselves and simply let ourselves be loved by God. Until we do that, we're, we're not getting anywhere. Let yourself be loved by God. Admit your sin so that you can appreciate the fullness of his grace. There was a time when Jesus was eating with Pharisees and a woman came in off the street and it just says she was a sinner. She began to weep and washed Jesus' feet. And Jesus turned and said to the Pharisees, whoever has been Forgiven little will love little, which means to her, whoever has been forgiven much loves much. Pharisees didn't think they needed to be forgiven for much, so they had no love for Jesus. But those who know how much they've been forgiven from, they can't help but but pour out their love at the feet of Jesus. You are dead in sin, but because of the great love that God has for you, you're made alive. Let's pray.